Now, 200 years ago, the um, eastern approach to Oxford from Ifley was, was actually very, very impressive. Ifley Road had just been built um, and uh, it uh, went straight through the open fields from, I'm putting my arm the wrong way, from Ifley all the way into uh, uh, the centre of town. As you approached the city along that new wide road, you would come across an increasing number of um, little wooden shacks and hovels and dilapidated uh, uh, cottages. They were described as one uh, observer as sordid by day and by night oil lighted. By 1820, all of those that have been, will, will be swept away. But ahead of you, along that road, never passing out of your view, all the way from Ifley, right into the city, is one sight which transfixes your eye. The magnificent towers and spires of Oxford. And substantially what can be seen today was there 200 years ago. All of those towers built to proclaim the greatness of Oxford and the greatness of its architects and built to last for centuries to come. And frankly, 200 years later, though um, uh, some of the full glory of that view may, be, uh, may have been reduced, those builders and those architects and those college authorities who commissioned those buildings, I think they'd be pretty pleased today. The squalid houses have long since been uh, replaced, but the dreaming spires still stand. They achieved, those people, what they wanted to achieve, a lasting monument. But now imagine you're walking along that road with different spectacles on. Spectacles which actually see Oxford through God's eyes. Spectacles which can see not just the buildings but actually the towering spiritual influences that uh, will uh, last for the next generation and the next generation and the next. I wonder 200 years ago what gleaming towers God saw. What magnificent monuments that he knew would still actually be exerting their influence 200 years later. Now, I, I wouldn't presume to describe the site from, uh, uh, from God's perspective, but I know this. There are many towers in this world which impress the human eye but do not impress God and there are many things invisible to the naked eye which actually from God's perspective stand as enduring, glorious towers. See, the approach to Corinth in the uh, Apostle Paul's day was actually distinctly similar to the approach to Oxford of 200 years ago, particularly. In Corinth, there were sprawling, sordid suburbs of poor wooden housing for sailors and slaves and minor traders because, as we've uh, learnt over the weeks, it was, a, it was a thriving port. 
but ahead of you, as you approached that city, were, were magnificent buildings. The Corinthians knew all about building great buildings. They'd been doing it extremely vigorously for at least the lifetime leading up to uh, uh, Paul's day. So when Paul starts to use the image and the metaphor of a building here in chapter 3, verses 10 to 15, his hearers know what he's talking about. His hearers are watched buildings going up. They have seen foundations being laid. Paul says, yeah, when I came to Corinth, I too was in the business of building. I too, he says in verse 10, am an expert builder. But he's not interested in uh, uh, competing uh, for a place on the visible skyline of Corinth. He has different spectacles on. He sees that city with God's eyes and he wants his hearers to see that city that way too. He is interested in building a different building with a different foundation and a different superstructure and a different judge. He is building God's building. God's church. He is building up God's people. I want us to try and understand then for uh, these Corinthians and for us who know all about glorious architecture. I want us to understand and engage with what Paul sets as the real priorities in any city. First of all, he says, what really matters, what really needs to be built, has to have a different foundation. Verse 10, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert building, builder, someone else is building on it. Each one should be careful how he builds. Just, just a, a few years before, Paul had arrived in Corinth and he had planted a fledgling church he had laid a foundation. But now, he says, there's a whole horde of people who are uh, having a go at building on this foundation. Some of them, as we've seen, were trying to make uh, the, the, the church into uh, a monument for themselves, into a monument for the, for the glory of the uh, human beings. In the process... Paul says they are actually tearing up the foundations that he had built. Oh, we need to be careful, he says, uh, how, how we build on that uh, foundation because the foundation is absolutely vital. Verse 11, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Or as Paul puts it in uh, chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the key. The foundation of your life and mine, if you are a Christian, is the cross of Christ. The Son of God who died for our sins. 
And Paul says nothing in our lives, either individually or corporately, as God's people, is worth building unless it is on that solid foundation. We never move off it into, into uh, some other building project that somehow is more glorious. We always come back in everything that we do if we are Christians and want to build something of value to the fact that we are people who are eternally in need of God's forgiveness won for us through Christ's death on the cross. We never cease to be that. We cannot build some great superstructure of marvellous human creation which forgets that actually every day I need to go to God afresh for forgiveness. Every day I need the fact that Christ died for me. If there is a day I forget it, it is the day that I start building my life on sand and the superstructure will fall. No one can lay any foundation, says the Apostle, other than the one already laid, Christ, and Him crucified. This is the person I am at root. This is the person you are at root if you are a believer here this morning. A person who simply needs God's grace and forgiveness every day. Paul says he's building then a different foundation from what human beings may like to build their lives on. The foundation for Christians is the forgiveness of Christ. And then he says, actually, we're building a different superstructure from what uh, builders generally build with. Look at verse 12. Uh, if, anyone, if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. He uses very surprising imagery, actually, um, to describe the possible image, uh, uh, the, the, the possible building materials that they might have. Some of it's reasonably straightforward: wood, hay, and straw. Little temporary shacks thrown up for poor labourers. Um, but some of it's very surprising. How do you build with gold and silver and costly stones? Perhaps Paul is alluding back to the Old Testament, the, the tabernacle and the, and the temple that, that were great buildings adorned with gold and silver and gems. Certainly in verse 16, if you look down uh, there, just be, beyond our passage, you'll see he starts to describe God's church as his temple. So perhaps, perhaps that's what's in his mind as he talks about building with gold and silver uh, and gems. But he's not yet, he's not explicit about that. But at this point, perhaps he just wants to emphasise the preciousness of the building materials that he's building with. Anyone can throw up a house of straw and a little ten-year-old, I used to go out at um, hay baling time 
and um, build houses of uh, uh, hay bales and uh, pretend I was living in my own house. My dad pulled it apart at the end of the day. But anyone can do it. But says Paul, building a Christian life is building with deeply precious materials. It requires care, diligence, practice, patience. Perhaps when he uses the image of, uh, of gold and silver and gems, he has something else in mind. Perhaps he just has the sheer beauty of those, uh, th- those things. The Corinthians marvelled at the great stone colonnades and soaring arches of their, their city. But in the end, those things were only grey masonry, masonry. Imagine a building gleaming with gold and silver, glistening, glistening with uh, jewels and rubies and emeralds and diamonds, something far more beautiful than the city that you see is being built, he says. Created on that foundation which is Christ, it is, being, it, it is something dazzling if only you could see God, it with God's eyes. This is a Christ-exalting, God-loving, people-serving community, Christians whose lives are deeply shaped by the glory of Christ. And he says, to build that sort of building is to create extraordinary beauty. Now, personally, I think Magdalen College Tower, in the light of a summer evening, is one of the most beautiful sights in England, except for what I see every Sunday. people being shaped by Christ. But the most important reason, it seems, why he uses uh, gold, silver, costly stones to describe the uh, building that he is building is that uh, he makes it plain that he expects this building to be tested by fire. See that in verse 13? His work will be shown for what it is. The day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. The fire will test the quality of each man's work. Roman cities knew the danger of fire. Just a decade or so after this, actually the great fire of Rome will will destroy, I think it was 10 of the 14 precincts of Rome. And burgeoning Corinth was full of wooden tenements that were as combustible as a tinderbox. And in a firestorm, such as happens in cities like that, actually even the stone gets degraded. Gold and silver, they may be melted down, but fire purifies them. It doesn't destroy them. Now, this is an altogether different building, says the Apostle, that I am building. Building on the foundation of Christ. Building a superstructure which will survive even fire. And it has to because it faces a different judge. 
Paul speaks of the day. Did you see that? Capital D. Which will test the quality of each man's work. The day is the day of the Lord. The great and final judgment of God. The day when all people who have ever lived in all of history will rise and face the risen Christ and have to give an account of their lives. And the Bible often describes that day as a day of fire, ripping through and destroying all worthless, pathetic, combustible things that we gather around us and revealing the true beauty and durability of the eternal things that we built into our lives. No one can escape it. No Christian, even, escapes it. God is absolutely impartial in his judgment. And Paul says the person who does the building particularly which of course particularly focuses on uh, people like me, but actually by extension all of us, as we invest in one another's lives, as we encourage one another, any person who uh, uh, engages in trying to build something of eternal worth must take care, must take heed of that reality that we all must face. The person who does the building needs to watch out, verse 14. If what he has built survives, he'll receive his reward, but if it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. He's saying that that person themselves may be a Christian. They may be someone who on the last day, when Christ asks them, what right do you have to enter into heaven? can say with honest sincerity, I have no right, but I trusted Christ, that he died on the cross for all of my sins. And I entrusted my life to him and followed him. And that is why, God, I can come into your presence if they are a person who can say that honestly and sincerely, then we can be confident that we will be, as Paul puts it here, saved. We can live in the presence of God for all eternity. But he says the tragedy for some of those people is that though that was the heart of their life, they built all sorts of rubbish around that. And that will disappear. That will be burned up. That will be gone. Perhaps the deepest element of that tragedy is that perhaps some of those true believers gathered around them people who thought they were Christians and yet to whom they never really explained what it means to follow Christ. They never really sincerely encouraged them 
so that on the last day we are saved. But to our incredible horror, they are not. They just didn't know. He will suffer loss. He himself will be saved. But only as one escaping through flames. Apostle Paul is saying then to Corinth and he's saying to us, open your eyes and see the true landscape. The true landscape, the true things that really matter to God, that really stand out on God's horizon, are not bricks and mortars, they are another kind of building. A building which is God's people. A building in which they are building together themselves with quality. That will last, he says, long after Magdalen College Tower or Merton Tower or Tom Tower or the Radcliffe uh, camera has disappeared. That will last and that will be glorious. That is what he wants to do here amongst us. And what are the marks then of a good building? Something that God really rates. Well, just for a few minutes, perhaps we need to, uh, to, to think about that. Perhaps we need to remind ourselves from 1 Corinthians, we could look elsewhere, but let's just confine ourselves to 1 Corinthians of some of the things that Paul has already been teaching us and some of the things he will teach us in coming weeks and, uh, uh, and months. Let's remind ourselves of what does not necessarily make a good building. The Corinthians were fascinated with their star preachers. That doesn't make a good building, he says. God is not particularly interested in, uh, uh, in clever speakers. He is interested in the fruit that comes. They were obsessed with, uh, um, with, with all sorts of uh, things that made them look good in the eyes of the world. You could say, for instance, that the quality of our worship, our, our music, as, uh, um, would be a better way of putting it, is, is not vital. Music, of course, is important. We've worked hard on improving it. But it's it's not the essence of quality that God is looking for. Good uh, management and organisation amongst God's people is, uh, is valuable, but it is only the scaffolding of a local church. Imagine the horror if when you take the scaffolding down, there's actually nothing there inside. You know, financial security, uh, Brian mentioned in his, in, his, in, his, in his prayer, financial security. It's not the mark 
of a quality church. Indeed, um, Magdalene Road has a magnificent uh, record stretching back for, for, for way belong, beyond when uh, I came here of stepping out in faith, trusting God for money. Back in the 1960s, the present uh, building that we have was needed to be extensively rebuilt by a modest uh, congregation. And I remember Brian's father, Gerald, telling me that the money came in through prayer. They embarked on it long before they, they could uh, fully afford it. When we, as a family, came to uh, Magdalene Road, again, there was, um, uh, there was only money to support us for a year, but God provided for us. Um, Brian's already mentioned our present church finances are, are looking or have been looking stretched at the moment as we've expanded our ministry team to increase our ministry as a, 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 as a church. As uh, we've uh, faced that stretch, I've felt very strongly called to ask, what is God teaching us? And I realise that perhaps one of the things is that year after year after year as a church, the budget has just been met. God's just done it. And maybe we've become uh, complacent. There's um, uh, magnificent signs that God is answering our prayers at the practical level for our finances at the moment. But I'm hungry that we should learn real spiritual lessons because frankly God is not particularly interested in balance sheets. He is interested in the spiritual lives of his people. Hence we've called a, a prayer meeting tomorrow which I hope lots of you will, will attend. Neither is a beautiful church, just a church filled with a certain kind of person, perhaps with a certain level of income or a certain skin colour, or even a life in a certain degree of order. He calls us to be a people who learn to love across barriers of rich and poor, across cultural barriers, who across, uh, across wide varieties of difference in how well someone's life is in order. He is calling us to a kind of quality amongst us which we so easily miss. Let me point out one element of quality that perhaps uh, has already been implicit but let me, let me say it very, very clearly. It is vitally important that each one of us here really is a believer. Those are shocking words, aren't they? About the day of judgment, about fire. One of my great concerns is to make sure that every one of us is ready to meet Christ or if not, that we've just heard crystal clear what we need to do to be ready to meet Christ. 
customary um, uh, these days in, and in many ways understandable for people to drift into uh, the life of, uh, of the church in, in, uh, imperceptibly by steps and, and in, in many ways we make sure that we are open to that. Anyone can come in amongst us and just find out and taste and see and, and, uh, and uh, see what it means to be a Christian. But in the end, everyone has to make a decision. We must sign up. We must surrender our whole life to Christ. No, Christ doesn't require perfect obedience. He died so that every day we lived simply as a forgiven sinner. But he did require that every part of our life be surrendered to him. I've noticed something over the years which disturbs me. There's a proportion of people who are attracted enormously by Christ or by, by the church and they come in and they, uh, and they uh, gather with us and other churches elsewhere for a period. But it never quite clicks with them, they never quite sign up. I've learned, actually, to spot sometimes the person who you know slowly has never quite said, I will follow Christ with my whole life. And if something doesn't happen to that person, sooner or later something comes along, a cost that they are not prepared to pay and they go. I have to say, frankly, I would rather that they did that than that they lived their whole lives at one level happily amongst us at another level never properly reconciled to Christ. Over the years I've become more uh, convinced actually of believers' baptism for, for that reason. We, um, as I said earlier, we have a policy of respecting different views on baptism in this church. But you see, believers' baptism in the, in the Bible stands as a marker, a marker which, is, which says, I am entering a new life. I go down into the water and I come up into a new life. It establishes for us what is absolutely vital at the beginning of our Christian life, the fact that we cannot just drift along with the crowd. We must stand and say, I will follow Christ. Because if we cannot stand now alone and say that, when we stand alone before the risen Christ on the last day, we will not stand. God is building quality amongst us and central in his agenda is to ensure that every one of us has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and is reconciled to him but then beyond that in 1 Corinthians the dimensions of that quality are just 
are just numerous and glorious. Remember Paul was calling these, uh, these Corinthians to humility. Their pride caused them to fight and to be jealous of one another and to constantly desire to impress the world. And he has called them to accept that the world will despise them and they must simply humbly work together as fellow slaves, like uh, slaves working out in a field, in God's harvest field. Or on a few chapters, we'll see in 1 Corinthians 5 and uh, 6 and 7, Paul calls them to, to battle for sexual purity. It is a battle for so many of us, isn't it? To keep ourselves pure. Or in 1 Corinthians 9, he describes how he actually surrenders every right that he has to reach out to other people and to tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or in chapter uh, 11, he describes um, um, uh, having appropriate relationships between the sexes. Or in chapters 12 and 14, he talks about serving one another with the gifts that we've given, simply using them as God's gifts to one another. And everywhere through this letter, he speaks about them loving one another, loving one another passionately, compassionately, sacrificially. Love between rich and poor, between mature believers and immature believers, between powerful and weak, but love which delights in good, love love which sacrificially serves, love which flows from their hearts with an unstoppable stream because they were first loved by Christ. And underneath that, still, he is calling them to have a rock-solid, joyful, humble faith in Jesus Christ who has given himself entirely for them, who has forgiven every one of their sins, and who will give them an inglori- a glorious inheritance in the, 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 his future new creation of resurrection life. Uh, just flick with me to the, to the culmination of 1 Corinthians, just to see where he is heading, the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is where he's heading. This is what he wants to build into their lives together. A solid confidence which cries out, verse 55 of 1 Corinthians 15, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. Therefore, he says, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labour is not in vain. You know that God has forgiven you. You know that you have resurrection life promised you which transcends even death. So that gives us a deep, profound, massively important question to ask, doesn't it? What building are you building? What what are you building up about uh, around yourself? What is your status?
What are you going to spend your time on? Are you going to invest in a stratospheric career? Are you going to invest in a dream home, a comfortable marriage, a good reputation at the academy or in the business world? Oh, perhaps if you're a Christian, you've, you've, you've spiritualised it. That's so easy to do. You are a Christian, but actually your desire within the Christian world is to build little more than hay and straw. To um, establish yourself as a person of uh, high reputation amongst God's people. To be a missionary so that everyone will see how great you are. To be an evangelist so you'll have a crowd of uh, uh, adoring disciples around you or, or whatever. Or are you wanting to build into your life a deep, passionate, rock-solid commitment to serve Jesus Christ and love his world? Everything else will be stripped away in a moment. And what will remain... There's Christ-like humility, sincere love, that, that, that persevering, painful battle you have with sexual sin, that, 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 that fight to be faithful and honouring to your parents, to sacrificially love your spouse, to be a diligent parent to your children, that enduring struggle to know Christ and to delight in him, those daily heartfelt prayers, sometimes when we didn't feel like it, but God was worth it, so we got down on our knees and prayed. That weak, trembling, passionately sincere effort that we made to witness to Christ to our friend. That lifelong commitment to serve Christ in the workplace so that people would see by the quality of our lives who Jesus was. That labour that we engaged in to understand God's word and put it into practice. That, those battles, internal battles with fear and despondency and disillusion and heart-rending grief. The joy that you won hard as you prayed and you wrestled with God and you sought to serve God. Which by God's Spirit welled up in you again and again and again. That deepening enjoyment of God's forgiveness and grace and the promise that he has in store for you. All of those things will last for eternity. Not a single thing we do through faith in Christ, is lost, is forgotten. And everything we do for any other motive is stripped away and gone. Lives that are passionately committed to Jesus Christ are like tall towers And their influence ripples out like waves throughout the world and, and resonates down through the centuries. I'll tell you a story. Os Guinness is a, a, a famous um, expounder of, uh, of Christianity and explainer of it. He often tells the story 
of a lady seven generations back from him. When she got converted, she set about praying down to the seventh generation for her descendants. And he is the seventh generation. Who knows how great she is in God's eyes because she prayed like that. She dedicated herself to Christ. So suppose God is wandering down the Ifley Road today from Ifley to Oxford and he scans his eyes over the horizon. What towers does he see that will last 